John 14. You can find that on page 901 in the, in the Pew Bibles there in front of you. Our focus today will be on the peace Jesus gives his disciples. If there is one thing we're all familiar with, it's a lack of peace within our own souls and within the world around us. We might think of the brutality and disregard for the image of God in man in the abortion holocaust. We might think of the injustice and exploitation of women in the worldwide pornography and sex trafficking industry. We might think of the international havoc raised recently in Ukraine with Russia or in Syria with Islamic State. We might think of the bloodshed and hatred displayed on the streets of Ferguson, Illinois, or the anxiety and panic unleashed by the spreading Ebola virus. The world around us lacks peace. But we don't have to look to the world around us to find a lack of peace. We have a lack of peace that's much closer to home. Our relationships with others at times suffer strife and hurt. Marriages experience times of bitterness and offense. Sometimes our children despise our instruction and fill the day with rebellion. And even closer, our own souls grow anxious with the circumstances around us. Our own souls borrow trouble from tomorrow and grow fearful of not having what we think we need. Our own souls know the temptations of the enemy who rages against us and seeks to devour us like a prowling lion. Our own souls at times spiral into despair, wondering when the darkness will lift and sometimes if God even cares to lift it. More than that, Our own conscience torments us with its awareness of our sin. The anger we see in Ferguson, we soon find in our own souls toward others. The rage we see in Islamic State, we soon realize, tempts us as well in our desire to retaliate with equal bloodshed and violence. The same self-absorbed idolatry in our, in our culture of convenience also exists within ourselves just playing out in different ways as we neglect to love our neighbor and disregard the needy. Even the peace we attempt to create by our own hands amounts to a temporary experience of self-rule that's then dashed to pieces by somebody else who attempts to do the same just in their way instead of ours. What becomes clear is that true and lasting peace cannot be found within our world and it cannot be found within our own souls. It must come from somewhere else. Peace must come from outside ourselves, from outside the world in which we live. And the Bible's answer is that it comes from God through Jesus Christ. There is no anxiety 
in God. No chaos or strife or disunity or fear. God is whole, complete, lacking in nothing that is good and right and true. Wherever God rules instead of sin and Satan, there is peace. Wherever he's truly present with his people, peace will reign and the world will be right. In the Bible, peace has less to do with the absence of strife and more to do with the presence of God blessing the world with his perfect rule. You know, the world would prefer to have all the absence of strife just without God there. The picture the Bible gives is different. The picture the Bible gives of peace is one of where God rules with his presence over his people. In fact, the Old Testament looked forward to a day when such peace would cover the earth. The peace offerings under the law taught God's people that peace with God is costly. They looked forward to a day when better blood would be shed to solidify peace with God and peace with one another. The prophets even looked forward to a prince of peace who would come and rule and establish a kingdom of peace on earth. And it's into this context that Jesus Christ, the embodiment of peace itself, steps. He comes. He enters a humanity without peace. And we hear him saying, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Can it be so? Can it be that Jesus offers us a peace the world has never and could never produce on its own? Can it be that we who claim to be his followers can know this peace even now when the world is still such a mess? And I hope you'll see today that the answer is yes, you can truly know this peace. A peace that the world cannot give to you. It is a peace that can only be found in joining Jesus in his victory over sin, death, and the devil. The world cannot give you true and lasting peace because the world cannot make your relationship with God right. Only Jesus can make your relationship with God right. And when your relationship with God is right, peace rules your soul and peace rules the way you relate to others both of which are only the foretaste of God establishing comprehensive peace throughout the entire earth in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. But let's hear it from Jesus himself. I'll begin reading in verse 25 of chapter 14. He says this, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. 
If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus' primary aim is to ensure his disciples find peace in himself. He's not telling them to look within themselves, but to look to him. Notice, peace I leave with you. My peace, not something that's found in you. My peace I give to you. He also clarifies that the peace he gives cannot be found in the world, regardless of what attempts the world may try. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And how could it be that the world gives us peace when it is ruled by the devil himself? As we see in verse 30, the ruler of this world is coming. The peace... Jesus gives them is his own to leave with them and his own to give them. And by implication, it is the disciples that they must receive it. They must receive this gift Jesus is giving them. But just to be clear, Jesus gives us a couple more components bound up with the peace he's talking about. Having peace in Jesus includes, first of all, a strengthened heart. Verse 27 says, let not your hearts be troubled. Remember, Jesus is on his way to, uh, back to the Father. And that includes his, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and then his ascension into heaven. He won't be physically present with the disciples much longer. And so they are confused. They're growing anxious with his departure. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. One component of his peace is strengthened hearts. Then he also says in verse 27, let not your hearts be afraid. So now we've got the ability to overcome fear as another component of the peace Jesus gives. So the peace that Jesus gives to us, it fortifies our hearts and it dispels all fears. This is something the world cannot do, apparently. Anything the world gives cannot strengthen our hearts the way they need to be strengthened, and the world cannot overcome our fears as they need to be overcome. The peace that Jesus gives does both. Now, having said that, I want us to see what exactly it is that brings the sort of heart-strengthening, fear-dispelling peace that Jesus is talking about. What is it that gives this peace in Christ's absence on earth, because we're all in the same boat as the disciples will soon be. Jesus isn't physically present with us either right now. He's in heaven and he's coming again in the future. But right now, we've got the same issue the disciples are facing in our passage. Namely, where are we going to find peace when we can't see the King of Kings face to face? When we can't reach out and touch his kingdom just yet on earth as it is in heaven. What I want to do is work backwards in our passage and show you where we find peace as we wait for Jesus' 
return. Four things stand out here. First of all, the resolve of Christ's love for the Father. We find peace in the resolve of Christ's love for the Father. This is in verses 30 and 31. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about dying on the cross. The ruler of this world is gathering people against him. He's already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. He's gathering now the rulers and the authorities to arrest Jesus and crucify Jesus. But Jesus wants them to know this up front. All that is happening to him in going to the cross is not because of Satan, ultimately. It is ultimately because of love. Jesus' love for his Father is taking him to the cross, even when it means he gives himself into the hands of the enemy. See, Jesus has loved his Father for eternity. That love for the Father did not waver one bit when the Father chose to give him up as a sacrifice for you and for me. Jesus' love for the Father didn't decrease when the Father set your sins before Him. When the Father put your punishment before Him. And when Jesus saw what your peace with God would actually cost Him. No, He embraced the whole mission with unflinching resolve to see His Father glorified in saving us. The cross is first a testimony that Jesus loves his father. And therein lies the only hope that we might experience peace with God unworthy as we are. We all need to hear this. True peace doesn't begin with our own resolve to love God more. It does not begin with your own resolve. To love God more, it begins with Jesus' resolve to love God, period. Let's face it, we lack the ability to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's why we sin. Sin is our failure to love the Father and why there's a breach in our relationship with Him. Our sin is a declaration of war against God. Not peace with God. That's not the case in Jesus' relationship with His Father. Jesus is resolved. He is unwavering in His love for the Father. And so there's no breach. There's no breach in His relationship with God. There's no discord that He has with the Father. The Father relates to Jesus in perfect peace. Now let me ask you this. What happens when Jesus' resolve to love the Father leads him to the cross? What happens is this. Forgiveness for your failure to love the Father since he dies in your place. 
and total peace with God. Since his resolve to love the Father becomes yours. His resolve to love the Father at all costs to himself wins the two things that you need to have peace with God. Forgiveness of your sins and a righteousness that is not your own. That's why Jesus went to the cross in loving obedience to the Father. This is right at the heart of the gospel. Jesus had to go to the cross in order to deliver you in loving obedience to his Father. He did this to become a peace offering for your sins and to become your righteousness before God. All of your sins went on him and all of his resolve to love his father, all of his righteousness, it went on you. And this great exchange, my sin for his righteousness, is the birthplace of our peace with God. Paul puts it this way. He made him who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin. Why did he know no sin? Because he is resolved to love the Father in everything. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He paid our penalty. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. His resolve to love the Father becomes ours. And Romans 5 says that when Jesus' righteousness, his resolve to love the Father becomes ours by faith. Simply by receiving what he's done. We have peace with God. The peace we could never obtain by our own resolve was obtained for us in Jesus' resolve. That's That's what this table reminds us of this morning. We will not eat in the kingdom of God because of anything we resolved to do or any decision that we made to turn over a new leaf. Or any work that we did to win God's favor. We will eat with Jesus in the kingdom because of Jesus' resolve to love the Father. His resolve is what prepared us a place at the table. But get this, Jesus' resolve to love the Father extends even beyond winning us peace with God. It It also includes winning us victory over our chief enemy, the devil. That's actually the next point. We find peace in the assurance of Christ's victory over the devil. Look again at verse 30. He says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world, that's the devil, the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. This isn't just uh, merely a statement of, hey, I'm sovereign over the devil. Even though that's totally true, and we've seen it elsewhere in the Gospel of John. It's just that here we're dealing in a context where Jesus is doing as the Father commanded him. It's a legal context. He's saying the devil has no legal claim on Jesus. There's nothing in Jesus the devil can lay hold of and say, Aha, I've got you, you guilty sinner. Which is what we know he would love to do, right? That's why he's tempting him over and over and again in the wilderness. And we know it's what he loves doing to us. 
part of the devil's tyranny over sinners is to stand before God as an accuser. He shames us with our guilt. He tells heaven how we've soiled our garments with our sin. Colossians 2 pictures evil rulers and authorities holding a certificate of debt over our heads that consists of decrees against us. These evil rulers and authorities shove it in our face. This is the penalty you deserve for breaking God's law. As if to blackmail us. Keep us under their control. It's even connected with the devil's power over death in Hebrews chapter 2. If we're guilty before God, then death is a fearful thing. Its sting hasn't been removed. And so he can threaten us with death because he holds our certificate of debt. The devil can't do that to Jesus. The devil has no charge that he can bring against Jesus... No legal right to stand up in heaven's courtroom and point the finger at Jesus because Jesus has no sin. He is resolved to love the Father and so he keeps all, of the, all that the Father commands of him. The devil has no claim on Jesus. That is significant for your peace because if the devil has no claim on Jesus, he has no claim on the people Jesus represents on the cross. Jesus didn't give himself over to death because Satan had something on Jesus. Jesus gave himself over to death because Satan had plenty on us. We were guilty. But Jesus went to the cross innocent to be slain for the guilty. He died to remove, to cancel, as you sang it earlier, to cancel the certificate of debt. The penalty required by God's law was paid in full by Jesus standing in our place. The certificate Satan once used to wreak havoc in our lives was nailed to the cross in Jesus' body. And more than that, Satan's power over death can no longer enslave us either because Jesus also rose from the grave. Three days later, victorious, proving that he was guiltless. Everybody united to Jesus by simply trusting him, is freed from Satan's tyranny and transferred from the domain of his darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son. And it's there in that kingdom, the kingdom of God's beloved son, that we find peace, the fullness of which is is not here, but is coming. The blessings of which we already taste, like the forgiveness of sins and victory over the devil... Sure, the devil's temptations will come. He will threaten your peace with all kinds of lies and false gospels. He will still try to shame you with all your sins. But the truth of the gospel is that whoever comes to Jesus by faith, on them the devil can, has no claim. He can claim no victory. He cannot stand in God's courtroom and accuse you any longer because Christ is your forgiveness. Christ is your righteousness. The victory belongs to Christ and all who are joined to him. This is what we preach to ourselves, brothers and sisters, when the devil tries to paralyze us with guilt, when he shoves in your face the shamefulness of your past, when he holds over you your past sexual immorality, Your lustful thoughts, your love of money, 
Your lack of love for others, your fears to talk about Jesus, your secret sins, nobody else sees, your hidden idolatry. He sends your soul spiraling into despair without any escape from the darkness and tells you you might as well just keep on sinning because God doesn't even care. This word says Christ is your rescue. If you repent and put your trust in Jesus, Christ is your victor. He disarmed the serpent of old and he smashed his head in the ground beneath his bloodied heel that you might know peace. And even though we have yet to experience that peace in full, Paul can say things like this in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's really good news on dark days. That's really good news to take to your neighbors who sit in darkness without hope. And there's still more to this picture. We find peace in the joy of Christ's exaltation to the Father. We're moving chronologically here. That's why I went backwards in our text. Christ's love for the Father takes him to the cross. His cross and resurrection not only give us the forgiveness of sins, but victory over the devil. Now we're seeing him ascend back to the Father in glory. Verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. That's where I'm getting the joy from. You would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. The disciples lack love for Jesus. And this lack of love is seen in their self-centered sulking over Jesus' departure. They're not rejoicing in Jesus going to the Father because they're too hung up on themselves and their problems and the present circumstances around them. They're questioning Jesus. How can he be better for them if he goes away? They don't trust Now, Jesus promises in verse 29 that the disciples will eventually change. But for now, that's not the case. They're struggling to rejoice over his departure. They're just like us. They're so fixed on their own problems, they lose sight of what's best for Jesus' glory. If they truly loved Jesus, they would see that Jesus' departure was better for them and better for him. The reason Jesus gives is this, for the Father is greater than I. Now some, like the Jehovah Witnesses and others who follow the Arian heresy that says that Jesus is less than God, they will take this verse and diminish the truth of other verses which clearly teach Jesus is God. Just as a side note, one of the easiest ways to spot false teaching is when people use the truth of one text to negate the truth of another text instead of seeing how the truth of both texts go together. Chapter 1, verse 1 already set the stage for how we should view Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is equal with God, even though distinct in person. So this verse here cannot mean that Jesus is less than God. 
Since Jesus is equal to God, I take it to stress the personal priority the Father enjoys in His role as Father over the Son. That doesn't diminish the Son's divine equality with the Father any more than saying a husband's headship over his wife diminishes her equality with him as God's image bearer. We even get that example in 1 Corinthians 11. The Father and Son are equal in divinity, but relate to one another in differing roles, the Father over the Son. It's in this greater role as Father that the Father sends the Son from glory to take on the humble state of a servant. By the time you get to chapter, four, uh, chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus, you find Jesus praying like this, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus had glory with the Father before the world existed, and He then set that glory aside when the Father sent Him into the world. He takes to Himself the form of a servant. What we're getting here is that once Jesus' work is complete, He desires to be clothed with the glory He had with His Father before the world began. He wants to be clothed with that glory once again alongside his Father. Now, here's why the disciples should have rejoiced over that. For Jesus to return to his Father is for Jesus to return to the place where he belongs in glory with the Father. Only now, the difference between the glory that he enjoyed with the Father before the world began and the glory he would enjoy with the Father now is that now he would be enjoying that glory with the Father as a man. As the God-man. That wasn't true before the foundation of the world. That was true only after the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now he would enjoy that glory as a man. And the disciples should know from their Bibles that all of God's purposes in creation are racing toward that day when every knee and every tongue will bow before Jesus as the God-man and declare him Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of history will one day break forth in reverent adoration and praise of Jesus. Everybody will see him reigning with glory and splendor alongside his father. Even the mountains and the hills before him will break forth into singing, Isaiah says. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands for joy. For him to return to his place of glory with the father would mean that the final day of peace was almost here. Everything that needed to be done was finished. All that had be left for the world to hear all that would be left was for the world to hear that Jesus reigns in peace and his final rule was coming. This is why they should have rejoiced. This is why we can rejoice. We live on the other side of Jesus' glorification. He's there right now. At the Father's right hand, alive and interceding for us, fighting for our peace until he brings the final kingdom. There's nothing and no one who can bump him off the throne or stop his purposes to bring worldwide peace. 
preach that to yourselves when you see an Islamic state provoking fear in the nations. When you hear of the hostility in a city like Ferguson. When you experience all of the uncertainties and trials of this evil world system. Jesus is in heaven and he will bring peace on earth. He's already broken sin's power. He's already paid sin's penalty. All he has left to do is eradicate sin's remains. That will include destroying everything that raises a fist against his father. We can trust him to do this, brothers and sisters. We don't have to live in fear or let the troubles of this life overwhelm us. Jesus is already exalted to God's right hand. To let the troubles overwhelm us. To let our, the fears control us. Is to actually live like he's not there. Like he hasn't been glorified to the Father's right hand. But he is. Even though we cannot see him, he is. The Bible tells us he is. Which brings us to one last point. We find peace in the help of Christ's Spirit-inspired Word. Verse uh, 25 and 26. These things, he says, I have spoken to you. So there's some specific things Jesus has said while, he, while I'm still with you, while he was still on earth. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, it's true that the Holy Spirit is our teacher still today. He teaches all believers of all time. He illumines our minds to the truth. That's spelled out elsewhere in Scripture, but that's not the promise that Jesus is making here. A promise that applies to all Christians in all ages of all times. He's making a very specific promise to the apostles. Jesus spoke things to them while he was still on earth. Which they heard while they were on earth with him. And the Spirit's job is to help them remember what Jesus said and teach them the meaning of Jesus' words. And the New Testament is a result of that. Let me show you two places where uh, John makes this, uh, the Spirit's work in teaching and remembering Jesus' words very explicit. Uh, we see it once in chapter 2, if you want to go there with me. In chapter 2, verses 21 to 22, this is where uh, Jesus has just cleansed the temple. Pharisees are all bent out of shape. What gives you the authority to do this? And... Uh, Jesus says, destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. They're like, yeah, right. Um, And the disciples give us the meaning of what Jesus says in verse 21. He was speaking about the temple of his body. How'd they know this, right? When, therefore, Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You've got to connect them, right? When did they remember? After Jesus was raised from the dead. What happens after Jesus is raised from the dead? He sends the Spirit to help them remember what He said and to teach them what He meant. 
Uh, same thing happens in uh, chapter 12, verse 16. Uh, after we get a quotation from the prophet uh, Zechariah, uh, John gives us this, chapter 12, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered. Remember Jesus' glorification, his going to the Father, right? Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So each time they're saying this, these sorts of things, they're telling you, hey, we're getting this, not, we're not making this up. Jesus taught us these things. The Spirit's bringing us these things to our remembrance. That's what we're writing down here. So this whole book of John, for example, is a result of the Spirit's work causing the disciples to remember Jesus' word and understand them rightly. So how might this bring us peace? Well, I think it brings us peace in a few ways. First off, it gives uh, me a lot of confidence that the disciples weren't just making things up on their own. God himself is teaching them and helping them remember. The words they wrote down weren't just the result of their own ponderings. It was the result of God's spirit who cannot err. All of his words are trustworthy. There's a lack, I mean, we know this, when we, people lie to us, get things wrong, it, I mean, we don't have peace, there's no peace in the relationship. We don't, have, we don't have to worry about that with the Spirit. He doesn't get anything wrong. He always tells us the truth. This is what we have in the Bible. He's totally trustworthy. I think it also gives us peace to know that uh, when we read these words, we're not merely reading the words of men, we're reading the words of God. He hasn't kept the truth about himself or or the world from us. He's revealed it on the pages of Scripture. That means if I ever want to hear a word from God in the midst of turmoil or unrest or anxiety, all I need to do is open this book. Do you want to hear God speak? Open this book and read, and he will speak to you. It is not mysterious. These are his words from the Spirit. So he isn't silent in the midst of our chaos. He speaks words of peace, hope, and joy and promise. In the same way these words of Jesus were meant to give the disciples peace, in the midst of their turmoil, in the midst of their doubts, Jesus' word gives us peace in the midst of our doubts. They quiet our unsettled souls. You ever been in a situation where the world feels like it's spinning out of control? It's caving in on you? You feel turmoil in your family? Stress at work? Fears of losing someone? Discouragement over a lack of direction? Worry over false promises? Faint-hearted over the long evenings maybe your husband spends at work? Disoriented by the illness of a loved one? We all face these situations. And then you read a word from the Bible that quiets your fears and fortifies your heart to endure. I remember walking through some uh, difficult circumstances when I couldn't even comprehend the evils that were being committed or how I was going to lead through the situation. 
And I remember opening up the word that morning to Isaiah 41 verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. That's mine in Christ Jesus. On another occasion, I remember literally running out of the library one day at school because of the weightiness of the responsibilities before me. Didn't want anybody to see my crying over the pain that I was in and over the pain that sin was causing in people's lives. And I went and hid behind a big, one of those big pillars at the chapel that they were building at the time. And I just opened up the Bible to Psalm 56. You have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. He keeps every one of them. He knows us that intimately. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call upon you. This I know that God is for me. And I can just remember through tears, peace covering my soul, like Paul says in Philippians 4. That the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. It is peace-giving to hear God speak in the Word. And it is peace-giving for us to take the Word of God into each other's lives. And into the lives of others in this world. So let me close with this. To have Jesus' peace doesn't mean your difficult circumstances will change right now. That's not what Jesus is promising here. Not even Jesus' suffering changed as he was speaking these words of peace to the disciples. But that didn't mean he didn't have peace. He just had a kind of peace the world cannot give, but that he can give to us. The circumstances will eventually change when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom in full. But right now, we haven't been promised the relief of hardships in the world. What we have been promised is peace amidst the world's hardships. Because of what we know Jesus accomplished for us. Peace has less to do with escaping our circumstances. We do this, right? We get in circumstances. We feel tense. We feel them caving in. Now it starts to start changing things out here. And the Bible's saying, no, you need to change things in here to have peace. It has less to do with escaping the circumstances and more to do with a faithful resolve to enjoy Christ amidst the circumstances and trust that he will be faithful. So where will you go for peace the next time your heart is rocked And your fears arise. Pray that we would all find it in the resolve of Christ's love for the Father. The assurance of Christ's victory over the devil. In the joy of Christ's exaltation to the Father. And the help of Christ's spirit-inspired word.